You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In this uh, third lecture, we're going to be discussing ultimate end, the ultimate end of human activity. And the lecture is divided into four uh, major parts. First of all, the discussion of moral teleology uh, itself. And then uh, I want to discuss the uh, argument that takes us from acting for an end to there being an ultimate end of human action. Uh, and thirdly, a discussion of a distinction between perfect and imperfect uh, happiness. Uh, and finally, we will be led on to this from uh, our discussion at that third point, a discussion of the relationship between moral philosophy and moral theology. In this uh, lecture, I'm going to be guided principally by uh, the Summa Theologiae uh, of St. Thomas Aquinas. This uh, great but unfinished work of Thomas was begun uh, in the late 1260s uh, when Thomas was regent master of the Dominican Studium in Rome uh, just prior to his return to Paris in uh, 1269 for a second three-year stint as a regent master in one of the Dominican chairs of theology there. Uh, Thomas died in 1274 uh, so that you can see he was uh, embarking on this great work very late in his life. But as you may know, before the end of his life, almost a year before, Thomas uh, underwent a um, spiritual experience uh, which led him to just uh, cease and desist from writing. He uh, made the famous remark that everything that he had written compared to what he had experienced uh, seemed to him to be mere straw. Some straw is the uh, reaction that uh, we will have when we read it, but we can imagine what that contrast must have been. Nonetheless, this work, uh, as I say, is uh, his master work, though unfinished, begun uh, in the last years of his life, uh, begun in Rome. This part of the Summa that we're going to be looking at was written when he had returned to Paris. Uh, the second part of the Summa is the moral part. The plan of the work is in three parts, uh, the first of which has to do with God and the emanation of things from God, so that uh, we begin with statements about uh, the Godhead, the divine nature, and then he goes on to speak about the Trinity, then creation, then angels, then man, and so forth. In the second part of the Summa, uh, he is uh, taking man's journey back to God. That is the moral part of the Summa. And th this part begins uh, with the discussion of the ultimate end of man. And I want to just draw your attention now to the very first article of that question. The Summa is divided into the parts that I've mentioned, and the subdivisions are into questions, and those questions are subdivided into a number of articles. Uh, this uh, question one on the ultimate end of uh, man is subdivided into eight articles. So I want to draw attention to this uh, very first one, whether it is proper to man to act for the sake of an end. That is, is it peculiar to him or do other things? But first of all, he wants to determine uh, what that means. Now, if his uh, discussion, maybe I should say just uh, a word about the format of an article of the Summa. Uh, the article asks a question, uh, whether it is proper 
to man to act for the sake of an end. And uh, then he will say, well, it seems that it isn't. And he will give several arguments, in this case three, uh, for the opposite position. Then the kind of hinge of the discussion is the said contra, on the contrary. And he gives usually an authoritative reason for preferring the original answer to the question. And then we have what is called the body of the article in which he argues on behalf of one answer to the question, and then that being done, takes up the arguments that were advanced in favor of the view he doesn't hold. So it's a nice dialectic. It gives us some sense of procedure, the procedure of the mind, the, uh, the conversation of the soul uh, with itself. Uh, I could go on about that, uh, needless to say, but let's look at the article here, the contents of this article. Thomas says the first thing we can do is to take the activities which are ascribed to a human being and distinguish those which are human actions from those which are not. A very odd kind of suggestion, as it might seem. But what Thomas has in mind in this is this. We will call those actions human, which a person deliberately does or responsibly does, as opposed to those activities which are attributed to us uh, willy-nilly. We don't set out to do them, they just occur. Uh, so that the way in which we isolate human actions from what Thomas uh, suggests we could call acts of a man uh, would be in terms of whether or not we are answerable for them. Are we responsible for them? That means they are actions uh, to which the question, why did you do that, uh, is meaningfully addressed. Uh, and the account that we would give would indicate that we set out to act having something in mind that we was trying to execute or bring about. Whereas if someone asks us why we are gaining weight or why we are losing our hair or why we are digesting our food and so forth, we could of course give causes uh, for those activities, but the causes are not decisions of ours. We don't decide to lose our hair. We don't decide, uh, we might make decisions that bring it about, but we don't decide to gain weight. We don't decide uh, to grow old or to digest. These are, as we say, natural functions. So these are truly attributable to us, uh, but they're not things for which we would be held accountable. So among the various activities that can be truly ascribed to a human person, uh, those will be called human actions, uh, which are the fitting target of the question, why did you do that? This isolation of what we mean by uh, human acts is in effect to isolate the subject matter of moral philosophy. These are the things that we want to uh, ask about uh, to get their nature, uh, to get uh, some sense of when they are well performed. So that first of all then, that distinction, that uh, there are human acts and there are acts of a man. Now built in, as you can see, to the notion of human acts is a teleology, that is a purpose, some aim. When we ask somebody uh, why they did something, we want to know what were you aiming at? What was your purpose? What was your goal in doing that? And in selecting that goal, in directing oneself to that goal, as freely as we do when this question is relevant, we are responsible for it. And that is, of course, another assumption of the question, why did you do that, turned on some activities as opposed to others, the human acts as opposed to the acts of a man, that we are responsible for them because we might not have done them. 
We were free to do or not to do them. We were free to do that or to do some other thing. So that built into this uh, discussion of uh, moral teleology, the way to identify, the way to recognize a human act as a human act, that is, as something peculiar to the kind of agent we are, is to see that it is undertaken for the sake of an end. And this end is deliberate. Thomas will go on to point out uh, that uh, every natural thing acts for the sake of an end or is ordered to an end. Its nature is an orientation uh, to an end. There are certain activities that befit a being because it has this nature as opposed to that. So in that sense, for Thomas, the whole of the natural world is a teleological world. Things are acting for the sake of an end. But what is peculiar uh, to human beings and alone, that being peculiar belongs uh, to them alone, is they direct themselves consciously and freely to their ends. As we'll see later on, uh, what uh, Thomas means by natural law is this peculiar human participation in the eternal law, in God's direction of all things to their ends and ultimately to himself. Uh, as the uh, overall end of creation of the universe. This is a point on which one might dwell, that is the fact that uh, for Thomas, teleology is not confined to the human order. It's the mode of teleology that is peculiar to humans that he is drawing attention to uh, here. Because if you look at the human acts as they are opposed to acts of a man, the acts of a man have goals. I mean, our digestive system and so forth uh, operates in the way in which it does because that's the way it's set up. It's its nature to do that. It was in intended uh, to uh, operate in that particular way. When ethics is uh, undertaken against a background of a view of nature as inert, as not acting for an end, as merely a kind of accidental or casual uh, set of events, it's a very different thing. But as you can see for Thomas, teleology, moral teleology, is a special case of the general teleology of the cosmos, of the fact that everything is ordered to an end. What is peculiar uh, to human teleology that is moral teleology? That we freely and responsibly direct ourselves to our end. So that the note of uh, answerability, uh, of why did you do that again, is what is at the root of morals. Uh, so that we are asking ourselves, how can we direct ourselves in such a way that we can, uh, in a fitting way, answer the question, why did you do that? Now the first answer to uh, the why, then, that would emerge from this, uh, addressed to actions, why did you do that, is what was your purpose or what was your end? What was the uh, aim for the sake of which uh, you did what you did? And what Thomas is saying here uh, are two things, that each and every human act is a human act because it is undertaken for the sake of an end. That is what characterizes it as a human action. The fact that other activities of ours are also for the sake of an end doesn't confuse this distinction because, again, it is whether or not an activity is deliberately and freely directed to an end which characterizes it as a human act. And furthermore, uh, the second major point that is uh, being made here is that a human act and a moral act are the same thing. If we want to know what the realm of morality is, what uh, morals is concerned with, the answer is human acts. What are human acts? Those that are freely and deliberately undertaken for the sake of an end. 
So that one way of appraising an action is to look at the end toward which it's directed. If it's a reprehensible end, we would condemn that action. If it is not, uh, well, there might be other things that we'd want to ask. We'll see much later on in these lectures, in fact, in the last one, uh, that there are three fonts of morality, that is, three ways in which we appraise human actions as good or bad. The end, of course, is a principal one, but it's not the only one. We also want to know what was it that you did in order to achieve that end. And we'll find that that's called the object of the action. And furthermore, the circumstances in which we act can cause the moral evaluation of that act to vary. Certain acts uh, in some circumstances would be perfectly appropriate and in others would not be. So that as we'll see the appraisal, the moral appraisal of a human act looks to the end, uh, but it also looks to the object and to the circumstances, but more of that later. For now, what we have to do is to see how it is uh, within this classical tradition represented by Aristotle and Thomas, and of course many others uh, before and since uh, Thomas. How do you move from the claim that each and every human act is undertaken for the sake of an end to the claim that there is some end for the sake of which all human acts are undertaken? That is, it has seemed to some uh, to be a kind of fallacy along these lines. Another example, that uh, all roads lead somewhere, so there must be somewhere to which all roads lead. I mean, that doesn't follow. So it looks as if uh, we might uh, be confronted with a fallacy here, and that one is jumping uh, from the fact that you can make a universal statement uh, about all human acts, that they're all for the sake of an end, to the illicit jump uh, that uh, there must be something for the sake of which all of those acts are done, some one thing. And of course what we mean by an ultimate end is an objective which underlies any undertaking in some uh, way as implicit as the aim or the goal of any act uh, whatsoever. Uh, we have name for it, of course, uh, and the name is happiness. Uh, the ultimate end is very often simply said to be human happiness. And then, of course, we have to ask, in what does human happiness consist? But it is convenient that we do have that name for it, as the Greeks did. Their name was eudaimonia, so that the ultimate overriding purpose for which we act was said to be happiness, and happiness then was said to be the ultimate uh, end. Among the things that means, of course, is that there is a proximate end for the sake of which we act, and then there is this background end or objective which is always there uh, and which is the aim of any particular act that we might perform. How is it that we make that transition? The fact that we have a word for it doesn't seem to be sufficient to establish it. It doesn't seem to be an argument uh, just as such. How does Thomas uh, do it? Because the opposite uh, view clearly attracts. I mean, if someone would say, there's no way in which you can reduce all of the acts that you perform uh, in a day, uh, let alone a lifetime, to one overriding objective. The claim of an ultimate end goes far beyond that because it's not simply that uh, some random individual might have an ultimate end for the sake of which that individual acts, but that there is an ultimate end for the sake of which any human agent 
acts, a very, very strong kind of claim. Oftentimes when people talk about this, they will say, well, you know, there are psychological types uh, that uh, have a dominant uh, purpose in their life to which they subordinate everything else uh, in their lives, ruthless people, we might say, uh, businessmen who are intent on making their first million before they're 25 years old, or uh, an artist, uh, a musician, who just uh, severely subordinates everything else in her life, let's say, to playing the cello uh, as no one has ever played it uh, before. And uh, those who have discussed this have said, well, sure, there are people like that, but they're kind of unusual. They're not the ordinary case. Most of us just sort of bumble along, and we do uh, what we do in the morning for this reason, that reason, and the other reason, and they just seem to be randomly related. And then we uh, move on uh, into the afternoon, and there are other things that we have in mind when we do this, that, and the other thing. And life is sort of genially chaotic in that way. And to try to see it as heavily organized in terms of a overarching ultimate end is, is to try to foist uh, one uh, peculiar psychological type on all people. As I say, I think that kind of objection has its attraction because it tends to take into account the variety and delightful and edifying variety that we find among uh, human beings. And uh, the idea that somehow uniformity of action, everybody working in lockstep, uh, is the ideal of human action would be, I think, uh, abhorrent uh, to us. So what is involved in uh, arguing that there is an ultimate end? Now, what Thomas, in the section of the Summa, uh, to which uh, I made reference earlier and, and to which I was referring, uh, to get his concept of the difference between human acts and acts of man, in that uh, particular uh, part of the Summa, uh, Thomas is going to proceed in this way. He's going to say, okay, what's the opposite position? You say, in some of my actions, I'm after this good, and others I'm after that good, and yet others I'm after this good, or we could put in there, but good and end are as good as coterminous here. And Thomas would say, that's the opposite view, right? You say, yeah, that's what I'm saying, that I don't have a single good, I have this good, that good, a plurality of good. And then Thomas uh, is going to say, yeah, okay, that's true, but in virtue of what do you call them all goods? In virtue of what do you call them all good? And he is going to say, to call assuaging one's thirst or hunger the good that is sought in eating and drink, those would be two goods, or maybe we'd fuse them into one and just say, uh, slaking our appetites generally, that's the end that we had in view there. And then if we uh, took a little nap after lunch, 40 winks, let's say, the purpose of that would be to restore ourselves somewhat. So we can give these individual and quite distinct aims of uh, quite uh, distinct action. And uh, Thomas, obviously, uh, is not going to deny that. But what he is going to ask us again is, uh, what does good mean there? And we give the answer that I suggested. And then he's going to suggest this. If I say that I'm acting for the sake of a good here, or a good there, the fact that I put a good, or this one, or that one, suggests that they are determinations of a richer sense of the good, which would be my complete fulfillment. My complete fulfillment. 
So what Thomas introduces is a technical phrase in the Latin, it's the ratio boni, that is the formality of good. You get a kind of sandwich view of an object. You have the thing describable uh, as food or drink or 40 wink nap uh, on the one hand, and then kind of covering it over like a hamburger bun is goodness. Huh? Uh, that is food as good, drink as good, rest as good. And if you ask yourself what that formality means, what that ratio boni, what it means to call them good, uh, that is to relate them, each of them, to us as to agent. And what we are seeing them as is, of course, this good and that good, but as constituents of our goodness in a full sense of the term. So for Thomas, what the ultimate end is, and it's a very interesting approach to it, I don't think it's always noticed as being distinct from the one that we'll look at later uh, that we find in the Nicomachean uh, ethics of uh, Aristotle. Thomas seems to be suggesting that the very logic of our use of the term good to apply to a number of particular things and relate them to us as a good, we can relate them to this particular appetite of ours, thirst, hunger, and so forth, but that is also to relate them to our good as our complete good. And they are seen to be good for us as we deliberately choose them and not as we're just sort of instinctively drawn towards them. That is, if we decide to eat, if we sit down to eat, if we decide to take a nap and so forth, the implicit judgment is, is that's good for me. That's good for me, not just good for my body or good for my appetite or for my thirst and so forth, but good for me. So that these particular goods, he's suggesting, uh, obviously are coming under a formality that is my complete good. That is a formality that is implied or in play uh, when we're talking about this aim or that aim, this good, that good, this end or that end. They tend, from this point of view, from the point of view of the logic of the language, that is good as a universal term that is not exhausted by saying that sleep is good, as it is, but it's not goodness. Food is good, but it's not goodness. And drink is good, but it's not goodness. And we're talking here about good for me. So he's suggesting that the very way in which we talk and think here uh, reveals that we're seeing these particular goods under a under a gathering and general formality, which is our overall or complete uh, good. And that's what he means uh, chiefly by uh, the ultimate end. And uh, then the question is, do we have only one? Huh? Uh, is there one uh, end for all human agents, one ultimate end for all human agents? And perhaps you can see already that proceeding as Thomas does, he's going to be able to make that kind of move as well. Because when I say that this and that and the other thing is good for me because of the universal character of our language, what I'm really implicitly saying at least is this is good for the kind of agent I am. This is good for the kind of agent I am. Now, I may be very wrong about that, but that, uh, Thomas is suggesting, is the implication. So he's saying the very fact that we say whenever we act, we act for the sake of some good, that has implicit in it already uh, the fact that we are acting for our overall good, our complete good, uh, whenever we act at all, whenever we pursue this particular objective or that particular objective. If they're related at all, they're going to be related under this kind of uh, formality. 
that is, as I'll be showing in the next lecture, is uh, quite a bit different uh, from uh, Aristotle's uh, approach uh, to uh, the matter. And this will lead us on in uh, the next section of this lecture uh, to a discussion of imperfect and uh, perfect happiness and the way in which this notion of a formality of the good or uh, the notion of ultimate end enables Thomas to suggest in a surprising way a compatibility between pagan and Christian notions of happiness. Well, we're talking about ultimate end, and I gave the rather surprising way in which Thomas Aquinas moves from the fact that in choosing some particular thing, we're choosing it as good, and that means that it shares in goodness, and consequently there is implicit in that the assumption that no particular good exhausts goodness, so that when we choose this particular good and that particular good, we're choosing them as components in some way of our complete good, but not either one of them, or perhaps the sum total even, of them as being identical with goodness itself. And that's what Thomas takes to be a meaning of the notion of an ultimate end or of an end beyond the particular goals that we pursue and that's always there insofar as in choosing a particular good again, I am seeing it as a constituent or a component or a means to my complete and full good. This is a different sort of approach to it as we will see later. I started with it because it seems to have a fascination to it. What this enables Thomas to do when he is discussing the relationship between ultimate end as a pagan philosopher, Aristotle talks about it, and as he as a Christian theologian is going to talk about it in a Summa Theologiae, uh, this enables him to see their answers as related in a complementary way. In the Nicomachean Ethics, when Aristotle gives a definition of ultimate end, we can, if we look at it through the lens of what Thomas has done here in the Summa Theologiae, we can see that he is giving a kind of notion of ultimate end. And then the next question is, well, what fills the bill? If by an ultimate end, we mean something that would be completely and fully satisfying of all our desires, and which when had cannot be lost, we would roughly have Aristotle's conception of ultimate end. And Aristotle is saying, well, everybody understands that concept. Everybody uses it, but they tend to identify it with all kinds of oddly different things. So that some people tend to live their lives as if pleasure were the purpose of life. So that having fun, we might say, to make it less sinister, is basically the reason why one does whatever one does. And one refuses to do certain things because they're no fun, they're boring, and so on. So we could say this would be one way of answering, well, what is the ultimate end? Having fun and avoiding the unfun, so to speak. Other people might have money huh? or power or wealth. Money and wealth tend to be related in some uh, fascinating way. But objects like this, which have been from time immemorial noticed as the big pivotal goals of human life, which do distinguish psychological types from one another, certainly in the way that the objection I entertained earlier would indicate. But again here, Thomas would take that and say, but you see, the notion of ultimate end is one that they're all agreeing on. What they're disagreeing about is what should fill in as the ultimate end. And of course, then the question is, do we just say, well, some people take it to be this and some people take it to be that? If the ultimate end means that which is fulfilling 
of the kind of agent we are, we have the criteria and means for deciding among the various candidates for ultimate end and seeing some of them as just non-starters and some of them as defective in one way or the other and finally coming up with a account of what is the ultimate end, what saves that notion of the fully satisfying and permanently possessed objective of all human action, come up with a proper account of that. When Aristotle moves from what we mean by an ultimate end to what will fill the bill as our ultimate end, He's got lots of things to say that we'll be looking at later, but what I want to seize upon is this now. Aristotle doesn't think it's possible for us in this life. He doesn't put it that way, but he doesn't think it's possible by us by means of the actions that we perform to attain the ultimate end, except to a certain extent. He doesn't go on about that, but it's a passage in the first book of the Nicomachean Ethics that would be very easy to overlook. But Thomas Aquinas didn't overlook it at all, because what it meant for him was that Aristotle had come to recognize a notion of ultimate end, and then had also come to recognize that we are incapable of achieving that end except in an imperfect way as Aristotle puts it, well, we can be happy as human beings are happy. And that is in a way that doesn't fully satisfy the definition of an ultimate end. And the most obvious note of the ultimate end that it would be impossible for us perfectly to achieve is once had, it cannot be lost. Once our end or happiness is had, it could not be lost. It's simply a feature of human life that it is possible for people's characters to alter, for people who are happy in the moral sense to become unhappy, that life is always open to that kind of change. We're never home free, so to speak, morally. That alone has been sufficient to lead Aristotle to say, well, you know, we can't really lay hold of something that fills the bill, fulfills the definition of ultimate end in this life. So what Thomas does is to say, when he looks at that, he looks at Aristotle's arguments and he says, that looks right, that looks right. It looks to be impossible for human beings to achieve by their own efforts and by their free actions in this life, something that could count as in a full and unequivocal sense as an ultimate end. By way of summary, he sees this as the statement that we can only imperfectly attain happiness in this life. Well, you can see then what, as a Christian, what an opening this is for him. Because then he can say, we now know what our perfect happiness consists in. And that is the happiness to which we have been called by Christ, a happiness which is not for this world, but is beyond and which consists in union, everlasting union with God, a happiness that is permanent and cannot be taken from it. So Thomas can then contrast the philosophical concept of happiness or ultimate end, the overriding good of human life, and the Christian view, not as if they were rival notions of the complete and attainable purpose of human life. I mean, if Aristotle said, this is what we mean by an ultimate end, A, B, and C constitute the ultimate end, and by golly, we can, by our own efforts, achieve A, B, and C, therefore we have achieved our full good without any qualification. He doesn't say that. 
He doesn't say that. What he says is, that's what an ultimate end is, and what we can achieve in our lives by our efforts, by the virtues that we acquire and so forth, only imperfectly realizes that notion. Thomas then can say, the happiness to which we are called and which we can achieve thanks to the grace won for us by Christ, that fulfills the notion of ultimate end that Aristotle had devised completely and totally. So they're not rival views. They're not rival views. Again, it's not as if Aristotle thought that an ultimate end in its full sense is attainable in this life, and Thomas is saying, as a Christian, no, it's attainable only in the next life. Then it would be an either-or situation, you see. You'd have to pick between those and say, well, which of them is right? If the Christian view is right, then Aristotle would have had to be wrong. And that would, of course, have affected Thomas's attitude towards Aristotle, and we might say generally his attitude as a Christian towards philosophy and its relationship to Christian revelation. But this is another instance where he sees in the phrase of the fathers, he sees philosophy as a preparatio evangelica, as a kind of prelude to the gospel. Not a rival of it, not in conflict with it, not contradicting it, but it provides us with a kind of imperfect realization of that to which we are called through grace to a perfect realization. It's a wonderful passage. Uh, what I'm referring to here in question four of the first part of the second part of the Summa, I think I neglected to say when I was talking about the division of the Summa that the second part is subdivided into a prima secundae and a secunda secundae, the first part of the second part and the second part of the second part. And I was reading, of course, from the first part of the second part. And it is in the fourth question, first part of the second part, that you'll find Thomas discussing the matters that I've just laid before you. Here is a wonderful and very concrete instance of what he meant by saying that philosophy and the faith complement one another. They're not in conflict. And this is why he became such a champion of the philosophy of Aristotle. I mentioned that uh, he began the Summa in uh, the late 1260s in Rome. He also began his commentaries on Aristotle at that time, 1268. While still in Rome, he wrote a commentary on Aristotle's work on the soul. And then when he came up to Paris for those three years, 1269 to uh, 1272, he wrote a whole spate of commentaries. Among them, this one on the Nicomachean Ethics, which we'll be looking at in our next lecture, and on just a slew of other Aristotelian words. While he was writing this, while he was lecturing, as it might seem to us, night and day, and fulfilling all of the really demanding function of a regent master at the University of Paris, and not least, being embroiled in controversy over the compatibility of Aristotle with Christian faith some of his polemical works against those who, as he understands it, are misinterpreting Aristotle, date from this particular period. Thomas, of course, had read Aristotle all his life, but it's here at the end of his life that he devotes himself as a kind of uh, moonlighting occupation. He didn't do this as a classroom exercise to producing these magnificent commentaries on the works of Aristotle. I want now to say a few more things or a few things about the relationship between moral philosophy on the one hand and moral theology on the other. These lectures are, again, an introduction to moral philosophy, and I'm making a number of references, as I did just now, to the relationship between Thomas's beliefs and what Aristotle had to say. And uh, the question is, is philosophy just something that uh, pagans do? 
and then Christians come along and make remarks about it as to its compatibility with what they believe. Is that what it is, or is it something that anyone might do? And then, if he's a believer, wonder about the relationship between what he's arguing, what he's thinking, and so forth, and what he believes. There is a question, a vexed question, among vexed questions, as to the notion of Christian philosophy. And it's flared up a couple of times in my lifetime, as it happens, although the first time I wasn't really aware of it, this was in the early 30s in France, when a historian named Brehier made the uh, claim that no philosophy had gone on in the Middle Ages because all these people were believers, and how could a believer be a philosopher? I'm simplifying his view. But the idea was, of course, that philosophy and belief are just totally different things, and if one did have religious belief, he couldn't honestly enter into the enterprise of philosophy and he ought to just bill himself as a theologian and get it over with. Now, what's right about what uh, Brehier is saying is that we would find it schizophrenic if someone who was a Christian uh, wasn't influenced by his faith as he does philosophy, or we might want to say, insofar as he does anything whatsoever, uh, insofar as that's the most important thing in his life, it would be deficient in him, we would want to think, uh, if it didn't uh, exercise some kind of influence on whatever he did. And if he's a philosopher, wouldn't it uh, make sense to say that his Christian beliefs would show up. I mean, we would notice the difference between a Christian philosopher and a non-Christian philosopher. And we do. It's quite easy to see the difference. So does this mean then that Christians aren't real philosophers and that a real philosopher is someone who what? Has no convictions and just follows the argument where it goes and is pretty surprised as to how it relates to what he thought before he undertook the uh, inquiry? Uh, bunk. I mean, uh, one of the assumptions of the Brehier dispute and of latter-day discussions of the same issue is that the non-believer somehow has a mind like a blank slate and that when he pursues certain questions, uh, he doesn't have, so to speak, antecedent notions as to where the question is likely to go. All we need to ask ourselves is what are the questions to which a philosopher tends to devote himself? What are the questions that engage his attention and so forth? And we'll have some idea what his antecedent beliefs are, what his expectations uh, are. There's nothing sinister about this. I'm simply saying it's universal. The thing about Christians is it's pretty easy to identify what their presuppositions are, what initially guides their uh, particular inquiry would be. Let me give you an example. If I, as a philosopher, uh, confront uh, an argument that purports to show that human beings are material through and through, that there is nothing that survives death in us, and that death is quite simply and totally the end of our existence, I, as a Christian, know there's something wrong with that argument. Huh? I know that. Why do I know it? Because if the argument were true, Christianity would be false. But Christianity is true, therefore the argument must be bad. And that's a kind of antecedent attitude that I would have towards it. But what cash value does that have, let's say, in the philosophical arena? Well, almost none, because in order to proceed then as a philosopher, I would have to analyze the arguments put forward and show to the satisfaction of the one who fashioned and was persuaded by those arguments that there's something wrong with them. So in that sense, we can say Christians are guided by what they think is going to work out and what isn't going to work out in philosophy by their antecedent Christian beliefs. But so is everybody else. I have friends as philosophers who are materialists, and they assume that any argument that purports to show that thinking is a non-material process is bound to be a bad argument. 
They know that before they've even looked at the argument. They're inclined to think that. So that's the way in which they will relate to or respond to an argument that purports to show, let's say, the immortality of the soul because of the spiritual character of human thinking. That's the way Aristotle proceeded in this matter. So you see, in both cases, you have antecedent belief. So where does that take us? It might seem to take us to the point where we just say, you have these prejudices, and once they're revealed, you realize that people can't agree on these matters, that their views are really settled by something prior to the argument, and that all philosophy is the look for bad arguments for what we believe on instinct or something like that. Well, I don't think that's the upshot, because once we acknowledge that there are these quite different, uh, but quite influential antecedent beliefs on the part, not only of Christians, but of every other philosopher, uh, we just take that into account. And then we say, ah, but the philosophical arguments have to be such that they are persuasive to someone whether or not he shares your antecedent belief. So that I, as a Christian philosopher, operating as a philosopher, have to come up with positions and arguments and considerations on behalf of the things that I hold, which are negotiable in the wide world. That is, which are persuasive not just to me as a believer or to other believers, but to anyone, believer or not. Huh? And that, we might say, is uh, what Thomas understands uh, by philosophy in terms of its arguments. Uh, philosophical arguments are such that uh, they are uh, dependent upon principles or starting points which are in the public domain. That is, they're common to believers and non-believers, and the arguments will work if indeed those premises, those starting points, turn out to justify the conclusions that we want to reach. Now that is, of course, a very rarefied look at philosophy, simply to look at its arguments, but the arguments of philosophy are characterized in that way, unlike those of theology, uh, which are such that the religious beliefs of the Christian enter into the argument as such. They're not antecedent to the argumentation and so forth, but truths that God has revealed about himself are the starting points or the principles of theology in this uh, honorific sense of the term, where we distinguish moral philosophy from moral theology. So here it's a very different kind of uh, enterprise, a very different kind of discourse. It's such that it could only be truth conveying for someone who shared its starting points. Those starting points are the truths of faith. So one who does not have the faith might follow a theological argument and be able to analyze it logically and so forth, but it wouldn't be taking him from truth to truth, which is basically what we want an argument to do. But now given uh, these two, as I say, kind of abstract ways of comparing philosophy and theology in terms of whether or not there enters into their discourse as such the truths of faith, we would leave out the ambience, the existential ambience, we might say, to be flashy, uh, within which these arguments are sought, within which the questions are raised, to which the arguments are answered. And that is the problem of Christian philosophy, or the question of Christian philosophy. When I gave the McGivney lectures a few years ago at the John Paul II Institute on Marriage and the Family in uh, Washington, D.C., I chose as the topic of them the question of Christian ethic, and in it uh, took up at a much greater length, though still briefly, some of the questions that I'm touching on here. 
It is a consideration which, uh, it seems to me, is never really exhausted. When I was young, I thought I had a very fast and complete answer to the question of Christian philosophy, that there wasn't any. There wasn't any. And why? Because philosophical arguments are of this kind and theological arguments are of that kind. So what's the problem? The problem is that that leaves out the one doing philosophy, and it leaves out the uh, motivations and the presuppositions with which we philosophize. And most of the difficulties in terms of not achieving agreement in the philosophical order are due to these antecedent conditions. And it's usually because they're not acknowledged. As I said, it's very easy to recognize them in the case of the religious believer. His beliefs are right out there on his sleeve. Whereas when it's, let's say, a non-believing philosopher, it's a lot harder to determine just what his presuppositions are because there isn't a convenient label for those presuppositions. People have proposed labels for it, uh, naturalism or secular humanism and the like, and those tend to suggest to us just what sorts of motivation, what sort of uh, presuppositions, what sort of presumption underlie this person's entering into a discussion as opposed, let's say, to a believer. It's just a much healthier uh, situation, I think, when we recognize that because then we are prepared for the fact that even a good argument very often seems to have absolutely no effect on uh, a person who's extremely intelligent with whom we are discussing. And why is that? Well, it's very much like what I suggested with regard to my own response to an effort to show that death is the total and complete end for a human being. That collides with my religious beliefs, so I'm going to tend to resist that argument and to uh, feel that it's got to be bad. Of course, I'll be able to show that, and I'll win the philosophical game, whereas the uh, person who resists the view that it can be proved philosophically that death is not the end for human beings because he's antecedently a materialist, alas for that poor fellow, he's not going to be able to show that my argument on behalf of that is a flawed or imperfect argument. I'm being semi-facetious here. But perhaps that uh, indicates with some clarity what the difference is between moral theology and moral philosophy. Moral theology, like all theology, has built into it as part of its apparatus truths that have been revealed. And it also enables us to say something about this fascinating question of Christian philosophy or Christian ethic. Next time we'll turn again to allied matters and uh, be dealing with the way in which Aristotle approaches this and the way in which the notion of virtue comes into the forefront of moral philosophy. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.